and welcome to How to Fix, a podcast all about the behind the scenes innovations that are solving society's big questions. I'm your host, Rich Williams, and across this series, we'll be talking to the cutting edge researchers, activists, and politicians who are taking ideas from the lab to the street to make this world a better place. Now, the question of eradicating violence against women and girls is too big to address in one podcast. Misogyny and patriarchy are ingrained in our society. You don't need to scroll for too long on social media to see that misogyny and threats of violence against women and girls exist in the millions of conversations that happen online every day. But violence obviously isn't just online. It happens in the home and in public, and it takes many forms, financial, emotional, physical. As for the role of allyship, the part that men can play, how safe I feel walking home at night, I suspect is very different to how women experience public spaces. There's a lot to talk about here, and although there are lots of developments, creating new offences for things like stalking or upskirting, for example, they only become relevant after violence has happened. So, how do we prevent violence against women and girls? Here is the list from Counting Dead Women and the Femicide Census of Women Killed, where the primary suspect or known killer is a man since this time last year. The crimes associated with Vorg are abhorrent, which is why we've already taken significant action to strengthen the criminal justice system's response to it. Much has been done, but we are ambitious to go further. An unnamed woman. Things are changing, but we just have to keep the light shining. Domestic abuse is a horrendous crime, and enough is enough. And today I'm announcing one of the toughest suites of measures that the government has put forward. I'm changing the law. Another unnamed woman. We had to a checklist of every woman here. Have you ever been catcalled, flashed, followed, uh, groped? Every single one of them would say, yes, this has happened to me. It's just that the only thing that has changed is that when we say that this is happening, people are starting to say, oh, perhaps it shouldn't, which wasn't the case. You said it before and nobody changed anything. Um, so I'm really hoping that we're, we're riding the tide of that change. Joining me to discuss this are three guests who are making a real difference. Dr. Sam Lewis, Associate Professor in Criminology and Criminal Justice. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you very much for having me today. Alison Lowe, OBE, the Deputy Mayor for Policing and Crime in West Yorkshire. Hello, thank you for asking me. And also Dr. Anna Barker, Associate Professor in Criminal Justice and Criminology. Welcome to you as well. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Right. There's obviously a heck of a lot to talk about here on what is an incredibly complex issue. But Sam, I'm going to come to you first because I know you held a conference on this recently. So it might be worth you giving us a little bit of context about that and talk us through the conference and what you were discussing. Thank you. Well, if we could maybe start by unpacking what we mean by violence against women and girls, because that's central to any strategy. So violence against women and girls includes a wide range of behaviours, such as stalking and harassment, rape and sexual assault, murder, 
so-called honor-based crimes, human trafficking, coercion control. And what we find, though, when we look at the statistics, when we look at victim surveys, is that most perpetrators are male and most survivors are female. So that's an important starting point for us to think about when we're thinking about how to respond to these issues. Earlier this year, the Home Office identified violence against women and girls, or VORG, as it's sometimes known, as a national threat to public safety. And when we look at the statistics, we can see why. The Crime Survey for England and Wales, which is a national victim survey, estimated that in the most recent statistics, which the year ending March 2022, 2.4 million people, that's 1.7 million women and just under 700,000 men, experienced domestic abuse in that 12-month period. On average, a woman is killed by a man every three days in the UK. And as we'll hear from Anna Barker later, it's not just the women who experience these violences and abuses whose lives are impacted. The threat of violence has a ripple effect that reaches out to impact women in their everyday lives. But the good news is that there is a great determination amongst policymakers, practitioners and academics to address these issues which were increasingly recognised. And yes, we did, as part of that, recently hold a conference with Cumbria Constabulary and uh, domestic abuse service providers there in Cumbria, looking at research that we've conducted on a Home Office-funded project on domestic abuse in rural areas. Those numbers are shocking when you hear them like that. You, you hear the numbers and the size of the problem that there is. And you mentioned the research specifically that you're doing on rural areas. So talk us through that element of this and what you found and therefore what can be done to improve it. Sure. So we're looking at a 30-month period of intimate partner abuse crimes within Cumbria. We, we talked to Cumbria Constabulary. We also talked to domestic abuse service providers and frontline police response officers. As we expected to find, the majority of victims, 72% of intimate partner abuse crime during that period were female and the same proportion, 72% of offenders were male. And again, the abuse was a wide range of different uh, abuse types. It included financial and economic abuse, stalking and harassment, coercion and control and sexual abuse. But what was interesting in this project is that we paid particular attention to the fact that Cumbria um, is a predominantly rural county. International research evidence suggests that women in rural areas can experience particular problems around domestic abuse, around, for example, accessing services. There may be particular problems, as was confirmed by the practitioners we spoke to, around, for example, the persistence of traditional gender roles and patriarchal values in rural communities and farming communities. And those kinds of barriers might really prevent some victims asking for help. We also heard from police uh, frontline response officers that sometimes finding those properties and reaching women could be extremely difficult. For example, in the winter when the roads are perhaps impassable, the road network can make things very difficult. So all those sorts of issues are peculiar to some rural areas and present real barriers. But there are things we can do. And I think that's a really important message to take away. So, for example, outreach work by domestic abuse service providers can be really important. And sometimes that's not in the community where women live. Sometimes women don't want to meet with domestic abuse practitioners in their local community where everybody knows everybody and the curtains are twitching. They want to be taken somewhere else to have those important conversations. We have to recognise that in an area perhaps with no broadband, no Wi-Fi, no mobile phone signal sometimes, again, that can make access and services very difficult. So it's about finding ways of reaching out into those rural communities and providing the services that those uh, women need. And in terms of support services and being able to make those accessible, you know, how do we go about doing that? Saying we know what the issue is is one thing, but how do you make it accessible and tell people that if you do have a problem like this, there are people there to help? 
It's a hugely important question. So it's absolutely central that we all act as ambassadors in our own local communities to talk about domestic abuse. There's a huge silence around domestic abuse, not just in rural communities, not just in working class communities or middle class communities. Across society, there's a huge silence. And why is that? I think because there's a great deal of stigma and shame. I think we all like to think that it could never happen to us. But the truth is it can happen to anybody. And the more we're prepared to recognise that, the more we're prepared to talk about it, the more light we can shine on this problem. And the more survivors will be able to talk about these issues. And that's hugely important because actually the first person that a survivor may talk to probably won't be a police officer. It might be a neighbour. It might be a friend or relative. It might be their GP. It might be somebody at the child's school. So we have to all be open to these conversations and not be embarrassed to talk about it because it's not, as I say, something that happens to other people. It's something that can happen to any of us. I guess this is a question for for everyone, really. But when you're talking about violence against women and girls, women and girls covers a whole plethora of people uh, from different parts of society, backgrounds, ethnicities, all those kinds of things. Is it more difficult for some elements of society to step forward than it is for others? Yes, that's true. It, it, it is. I think what you're talking about there is intersectionality. So increasingly, we recognise that whilst women may be oppressed or experience inequality of treatment because they're women, some women experience other oppressions, perhaps on the basis of race or sexuality or disability or class. And so some women will need services that are tailored specifically to their needs, which is what, and again, there is good news in that area too, because whilst there are organisations like Women's Aid and Refuge that provide services to abuse survivors broadly, there are specialist services. The Seek Women's Aid, for example, Southall Black Sisters. There's the what was previously called Broken Rainbow, now called Gallup, which provides services for LGBTQ plus survivors. And there's the Mankind Initiative and the Men's Advice Line for male victims, because of course men are victims. So there are bespoke service providers that can provide nuanced interventions for women and men that meet their particular needs. But of course, there are national organisations that you mentioned, and we need to make sure that we commission local services that meet the needs of local women, children and men, because if we don't have that local response, then people will have further barriers to access. So here in West Yorkshire, of course, the Mayor commissions £18 million worth of services every year, and a large proportion of those services are services supporting victims of violence. We support all the rape crises, for example. We provide ISVAs advers and now stalking advocates and we make sure that all the provision is intersectional so we have provision for trans women and men we have provision for black south asian people and we also have provision for disabled people because i think in a domestic abuse situation i think the evidence is that people with disabilities are further away from accessing services than the vast majority of other victims so as deputy mayor for policing and crime in West Yorkshire. Just give us some context exactly what that role encompasses, if that's all right. Yeah, of course it is. So effectively, I operate as the police and crime commissioner, although legally the mayor is the police and crime commissioner, but because she's got a huge portfolio, she devolves 95% of the PCC functions to me. There's three things I'm not allowed to do. Hire and fire the chief constable, set the precept, write the police and crime plan. Although I can be involved in the margins on all three of those things. So I've got a local role, for example, I'm massively engaged in speaking to the communities that we serve, ensure that we hold the police to account through a variety of meetings. Some of those are live streamed. Those meetings, we're responsible for partnership with criminal justice partners, CPS, 
the court services, youth services, probation, etc. We're also responsible for holding the police fund, and so we set the precept to make sure that the police get the resources that they need, of course, never enough. And we also have responsibility for commissioning. I've also got a national role, so I lead for the Association of Police and Crime Commissioners on race disparities, equality and human rights, and I'm deputy lead for transparency and integrity, so I do a lot of work with IOPC, for example, understanding how policing can better engage with the communities they serve and really build on that trust and confidence piece. I don't know how you've managed to find time to squeeze us in. The issue of safety of women and girls and in the area that you cover, what's being done at the moment to help improve that? What kind of things are you working on and and what are the positive things that are happening? The great news that Tracy and I, as women leaders, the only two women leaders in the mayoral combined authority, bring lived experience. So I was sexually abused as a child. I lived for 10 years with domestic abuse. Tracy was dragged off the streets by a would-be rapist many years ago, and uh, he went to prison for that. And so we bring that lived experience to our roles, and we want to make sure that our voices rise alongside the voices of other women and girls who have experienced violence, uh, domestic abuse, sexual violence. And so we bring credibility to the work that we're doing here in West Yorkshire. And the mayor said as part of her election manifesto, the violence against women and girls would be one of her key priorities. So it's massively represented in the police and crime plan. And uh, we have done lots and lots of work with West Yorkshire Police to get them to also acknowledge that violence against women and girls is a key issue for them. They've now got a violence against women and girls strategy unheard of but they have and we're working with them to develop further partnership in relation to eliminating violence against women and girls from our perspective we are commissioning huge amounts of initiatives resources to support first of all victims but also to prevent violence against women and girls in the first place so for example through the mayor safe communities fund we've given over a million pounds to grassroots organizations working alongside their communities to keep those communities safe the vast majority of the money has gone to charities working to eliminate violence against women and girls. We also fund more adverts. We've just set up a new stalking advocacy service, which we'd never had that here in West Yorkshire. But also we got the police to set up a stalking coordination unit because women were telling us that West Yorkshire Police really didn't understand the pervasive and insidious nature of stalking, that they were going to crimes and logging them as individual crimes, not seeing the bigger picture, so women weren't getting the support that they should have been getting. Stalking protection orders were not being sought by West Yorkshire Police. They're free. You know, they're the only protection legally that you can get that is free, and West Yorkshire Police were not doing their job in seeking those for victims. We're still quite low numbers. We've got about 20 live SPOs that we're seeking, but there were three when we started. We've also looked at women's spaces, where women go in the round. So, for example, the parks work that we're going to hear a little bit about is one of the things that we've invested in. But if you look at the bus network, women and girls have told us that they're worried about using buses. So the mayor's got on the metro card that there's now a, a tool where you can tell us where you're not feeling safe. The mayor is just about to announce the uh, recruitment of 15 PCSOs and they will use the data from that app, the data from women and girls and the wider public that tells us where they're not feeling safe to deploy those 15 PCSOs and a sergeant across the bus network so that people have got power now to say this is where we don't feel safe and there will be resources to meet that need. We're also really pleased that we've been able to bring in a huge amount of investment into the nighttime economy. So things like Ask for Angela, for example, which is right across West Georgia, but also safe spaces 
taxi marshals, night marshals, all this has been funded by the mayor across the whole of the region, giving women the confidence to be able to go to the spaces where previously they might have felt a bit worried to go. We should go wherever we want to go and this is giving women the green light that any space is their space and they should be living the lives that they want to live and be free to do so in a safe environment. Do you know what, it's actually just amazing you reel off those things that you've been doing here in this area because you're obviously leading with that in, in the country and it's so important. There was one thing that you said that was interesting in bringing in what you'd said earlier, Sam, as well, which is that there are two elements here, isn't there? There's support for when something has happened and there is preventative work yeah, as yeah. well. And you said you speak from, from lived experience of actually it's about how do we prevent this from happening? How do we protect that part of society from this happening. Now, obviously, there is no definitive answer there, but there are lots of things that can be done to help mitigate, to help prevent stuff before yeah. getting to the point where, unfortunately, people will need support having suffered from that kind of abuse. Absolutely, and one of the things that we've done is we've, we've written a safety of women and girls strategy that has within it the desire to engage with men and boys as allies. So we know that behaviour change from men and boys is the key way to prevent the you know, misogyny that we experience on a day-to-day basis, the sexual harassment. If we can get men and boys on our side, recognising the value of women and girls, being people who will say, no, that's not OK, to their peers, then we will all live much, much more safely in our communities. So we invest in uh, Train the Trainer programmes, upstander training. West Yorkshire Police are rolling out Paul Ed, which is training in schools completely free. There's 1,200 schools in West Yorkshire, 37 schools had signed up when the mayor and I came into office we've now got over 700 schools signed up and it's a program where we talk to young people about things like consent hate crime online abuse how they can be exploited in a range of ways but we also talk about healthy relationships so anything that could lead a young person to become a victim or to become a perpetrator that's the feature of the Pollard course it's run from years 1 to 13 so one child in year 1 will have a different course every year that they're in school and we're hoping that this is a huge preventative programme of training that West Yorkshire Police are delivering uh, and that it's going to make a difference. But we're also funding through the Mercy for Communities Funding in other ways, training for men and boys in a variety of places, in businesses, in colleges, in universities. And if we can get men on board, and many, many, many men are on board already, then it will be a massive shift in culture and women and girls will be safer to live the lives that we are meant to live. I'm glad you mentioned about allyship. I mean, I'm I'm very conscious that I'm the only fellow in the room right now. And it's interesting you mentioned about the role that men and boys have to play in that. I certainly know that, from my point of view, purely anecdotally, post the, the tragic case of Sarah Everard, it felt like men were coming into the conversations a lot more that where my wife, for example, was having conversations with her friends about safety and public spaces and all that kind of stuff they were now bringing in partners and we were having a discussion all of us a lot more than we have been before and that felt like a, I don't know whether it's the right phrase but uh, you'll know what I mean by it but like an enough is enough sort of moment in terms of the conversations that were happening because it is important as well that element of allyship and what men and boys can do to help say actually this is violence against women and girls but we have a role to play in this to help do our part. Yeah absolutely but it's not just about the murder of Sarah Everard I mean women have been murdered for 
centuries, generations, you know, the Me Too movement predated that and it seems that it sort of ebbs and flows, ebbs and flows. Mm. What we need is that culture where these conversations are happening organically, people feel comfortable to have these conversations and men feel able to challenge their peers, feel confident to talk to women and girls in a way that is empowering and that they are massively part of the solution. So we don't want, you know, come a day, gone a day. We want this to be embedded, you know, George Floyd was murdered and suddenly, you know, everyone's talking about race. I don't know that that's been consistent. I think it's starting to, you know, reduce a little bit. As a black person, I see lots of black people on TV now, which I didn't do before, but I also feel there's a backlash rising and we need to be really conscious that we're all part of the solution every day. Absolutely. Anna, let me just ask you about public spaces and bring into the conversation here because Alison touched on it there a little bit about public spaces. It is important to make women and girls feel safe that they can be walking through public spaces and feel that they are safe and that they don't need to be threatened is it a case that public spaces in terms of design just haven't been designed with that in mind that needs to be much more at the forefront yeah absolutely i mean women have a right to be safe and to feel safe in public spaces because it affects uh, you know their daily lives going about the city but we know that this is gendered you know a long standing finding from criminological research and surveys is that women feel less safe in public spaces than men and i think this really speaks to this idea that we actually are now recognizing that women have a different experience in public space and they also have different experiences in public spaces so talking about what Dr. Sam Lewis said earlier, that this kind of violence against women has a ripple effect. When we're talking about public spaces, we're often talking about the most common form of violence against women and girls, which is sexual harassment. And these kind of daily hassles, these intrusions affect women and girls' lives in you know, a great range of ways in the sense that they restrict our activities, they restrict our uses of public space. We are often what doing safety work, this kind of concept to describe the ways in which we change our behaviour to reduce our risk of victimisation or daily hassles. So we might avoid spaces like parks at certain times, or we might not go out alone. We might wear our headphones to avoid these comments. You know, all the things that we do, carry our keys, notify our friends when we get there. So this is, you know, kind of having, I think it's worth kind of distinguishing between the kind of threat that's faced in the domestic sphere from known men and often the kind of range of threats that women are experiencing in the public space from kind of unknown men, which is quite a kind of near universal experience. You know, when we're talking about harassment, this is something that's experienced by almost all women, but is a particular threat towards younger women as well. You've done case studies on this. So tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, so as part of our new guidance, which we developed in partnership with the Mayor's Office, the Combined Authority, Keep Britain Tidy and Make Space for Girls, we've got 10 really inspirational practical case studies that put some of that guidance into practice that are citywide approaches, for instance, like Ameo in northern Sweden, which has been taking gender equality in public spaces for decades now and has been putting some of these design principles with women and girls into practice to actual practical examples 
here in West Yorkshire, where we are, for instance, the Empower Project in Wakefield, which was run to bring women and girls into park in a safe and active way. And they attracted women through running loads of different initiatives like menopause mayhem, like buggy walks, like TikTok treks, boxercise and other things that were both inspiring to women and girls, but actually made them feel safe and doing activities that they may not do alone within the park context. So there's lots of practical guidance in there that helps kind of put this into effect and provides inspiration for those working in parks, designing parks to take this forward. What can be done to improve those spaces, reclaim the spaces, maybe for want of a better word? What's being done? What initiatives are kind of happening to make those spaces feel less intimidating or dangerous for women to walk through? I think what's been done is starting actually with the views and experiences of women, because as we walk around urban spaces, we are experts on our safety. We understand what makes us feel safe and what makes us feel less safe. So actually speaking, engaging with women and girls to understand what improvements could be made to the designer spaces and the management of spaces to make us feel safer. And so the research that we've done, we've engaged with over 100 women across West Yorkshire as work funded by the mayor of West Yorkshire in order to find that out, what are the types of things they're saying. So actually, we found that other women in public spaces signal a safer space and made other women and girls feel safer in the park, particularly women who are on their own, because it sends the message that this is somewhere where we would go, we would use, and we would be public. But what they're also telling us is that actually, the spaces needed to be designed better in order to attract women and girls designed for their needs and their interests in mind, but also designed by getting park managers, urban designers, not just police, but also to see these spaces through women's eyes, to understand how they experience these spaces. So things like openness and visibility along core paths and parks are really important. Teenage girls really thought about the idea of escape. So some of the things that are in parks, like multi-use games areas, which kind of have a kind of like cages in some senses, they are, you know, they're there to contain the ball. They're designed with high fences. And this really plays on to uh, teenage girls' minds in terms of whether they're willing to use these spaces and how safe they feel in them. So kind of open borders around parks and lighting through main paths in parks, but not just lighting, creating activity flows. So it's often the presence of other people that makes us feel safer. So there's lots of things that can be done to improve the design of spaces to make them more safer, more welcoming for women and girls. And this needs to start with actually speaking to women and girls themselves to find out, you know, what is it in those particular spaces? And actually, the good thing about hearing you say that is that's not hard to do. It's a bit of a no brainer. Like it's just a case of really thinking about having that at the forefront of minds when designing areas, designing spaces that... You know, because making it more open, more lit, less hedges, bushes, whatever it might be, is actually not a difficult thing to do. It's not. And there's been a practice called safety walks that have been used in Sweden. So where women and girls are walking around with the professionals who manage these spaces, design these spaces to talk you know, in situ. And that's actually relatively cheap and easy thing to do to actually kind of solicit that engagement. But we do need to also reach out to those who are less likely to give their views, who are not using the park, who are not using public spaces. Because if we only talk to one, two are there, then we're not kind of making this as accessible as we can to, to all. And like we mentioned throughout the whole of this discussion, it's about other people playing their parts as well when they're in those spaces and I guess looking out for other members of the public and what they can do. 
Absolutely. So in our research, women were quite ambivalent about whether people would act as active bystanders. But the presence of other people and the presence of park staff and particularly having other women available in the park were a sign that potentially they could seek help. So this idea of actually seeking help in a space was actually really important to them. So whether that is from other people and whether how we kind of build that culture that actually we would intervene, not necessarily in direct ways. Um, but there's lots of ways in which you can intervene to support someone when they're facing a situation. Just one other thing I was, I was going to mention, which you sort of touched on before a little bit, Alison, but in terms of online abuse and the rise of that. I mean, mention when we started the podcast, take something like upskirting as an example, which is now an offence. But keeping on top of those things is very difficult when there is new technology and new ways, sadly, for people to abuse others. How do you go about that from a policing point of view? Well, from a West Yorkshire Combined Authority perspective, we keep on talking to the public. That's the one of the biggest roles that we have, uh, Tracy and I, is to engage with the public of West Yorkshire, understand what matters to them, and then we use that knowledge uh, to feed back to government. So we regularly write to government uh, around areas. So, for example, we were very happy that a campaign led by somebody else was very successful recently where we wrote to the Minister of Justice and said, why are men who are stabbing women Women, murdering women in their own home 40, 50, 60 times, getting a lesser sentence than somebody who takes a knife out into the community and does it on the street. And this happened to a woman called Poppy Diva. She was stabbed multiple times in her own home. And because the perpetrator had used a domestic knife and not taken one out into the street, he was given something like five to ten years less than somebody who did it on the street. So we listen to the public and we act accordingly. But it's right that lots of the legislation is very, very old. Victorian and we need to make sure that it reflects the offences and the offending that's happening today and that is really difficult because uh, it takes the government of the day a long time to bring new legislation forward and so we need to have those campaigns, we need to have those voices that we're presenting back to Parliament to make sure that those changes happen. Well look, thank you all so much for sharing the work that's been done from the research to the practical stuff that's happening as well. We started this podcast by asking, how do we fix violence against women and girls? Which, of course, is a huge question. And I guess my final question to you all would be, if you were to wake up tomorrow and one thing could change to advance the work you're doing to take it to that next step, that next phase of discussion and to improve things, what would that one thing be? That maybe slight game changer that could push things forward a bit? It might not be the easiest question to answer, but Sam, I'll, I'll start with you if that's okay. I think a key thing for me that would make a real difference would be for everybody to recognise that it's all of our problems. If you're a woman or if you have sisters or female friends, a mom, nieces, everybody has to be concerned about violence against women and girls. And we can all act to make the world a better place for women and girls. So, for example, I've recently completed Women's Aid Ask Me training, which is designed for ordinary members of the community to ensure that everyone can listen to survivors when they try and tell their story, can believe them, because that's critical, because lots of survivors feel they won't be believed, and then can signpost people to support services. We don't all have to be experts, but we do need to be able to signpost people who can provide that support. And as you've heard today, there is a plethora of support available out there, and we just need to enable people to act 
access it. So for everybody to play their part and recognise they have a role to play would be a wonderful step in the right direction for me. And Anna, in terms of public spaces and that area that you've been talking about, what's the one thing for you? I think start listening to women and girls really about how to design and manage these spaces that work much better for them and that open up the space for them. And these things are relatively simple and easy to do but we need to actually start engaging much more. And this is about a role, going back to what uh, Sam said, this is a role for the police, but it's also a role for a much wider set of actors in society. So parks managers, those who work in parks, those who design parks, all the different urban landscape professionals and community groups. So friends of groups who do lots of practical work each year in parks and have a wider reach into their communities reach out, speak to women and girls, find out what their concerns are in those particular spaces and, um, and act on it. And Alison, from that sort of policing standpoint? Well, clearly, if we had police officers that weren't misogynistic, racist, homophobic, then that would be a great start, wouldn't it? But, you know, policing is uh, taken from the wider communities that they serve. And whilst ever those kind of people exist in society, then they'll also exist in systems like policing, like the NHS, etc., etc. For me, it's about systems recognising that the potential for sexism, misogyny, homophobia, all the rest of it, is there that they put systems and processes in place to weed out those people, that their recruitment processes are rigorous, that their vetting processes are rigorous, that the ongoing demand for high-quality training is there and that people have to go through that training and any red flags are acted upon straight away. We're on that journey here in West Yorkshire. We've got some really good green shoots of success, you know, but we still hear on a regular basis news of another police officer or member of staff involved in an abuse of power for sexual purpose, for example. So we're not there yet and we may not be there ever, but we have to believe that it's possible because if we don't, then how can trust and confidence in policing ever be at the level that it needs to be for the police to do the job that they must do to keep us all safe? I really hope that everyone listening to this has heard that there is a lot of work being done on a topic that sometimes feels, like you said earlier, Alison, has been going on for many, 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 many years, but that there is amazing work being done, uh, research done here at the University of Leeds and local government working on this as well. I do just want to say that what we're going to do is we're going to put in the show notes on this podcast for anyone who might have been affected by anything that they've heard or want to find out more. And particularly, Sam, you were talking about actual places that you can go to receive help. We're going to put that in the show notes. So for anyone listening, can go to there. But thank you all so much for joining us on this and for uh, sharing your expertise and the work that you've been doing. It's very, very much appreciated. So there you go. I'm Rich Williams, and this has been How to Fix. Hopefully this podcast has shown that although society is facing some huge questions at the moment, there are, like we've just heard, incredible people constantly researching and innovating to help tackle those issues. And speaking of the big issues, we'll be discussing another one in the next episode. How to Fix was presented by Rich Williams and produced by Kasia Tomashevich. The audio producer was me, Jade Bailey, and the lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff. How to Fix is a Podmasters production for the University of Leeds Communications and Engagement Team. Thank you.